Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den serbiske økonom Branko Milanovic, som er en god ven af huset, har været gæst her i Langsomme Samtaler et par gange før. Og hvis bøger, vi har den glæde at være udgiver af på Dagbladet Informationsforlag. Hallo! Hallo, Branko! Yes, I hear you and I see you! Branko Milanovic er født i Beograd i 1953. Han voksede op i Titus Socialistiske Jugoslavien, og det var der, han begyndte at studere økonomi og begyndte at interessere sig for ulighed. Senere fik han et job som cheføkonom i Verdensbanken, hvor han tilegnede sig meget af det datamateriale, som senere skulle blive grundlaget for hans bøger og hans forskning. Han blev verdensberømt for nogle år siden, da han udgav den såkaldte elefantgraf. Det er en graf, der ligner konturerne af en elefant, når man ser den blæst op relativt stort. Grafen viser, hvad globaliseringen har gjort ved uligheden i verden. Den viser, hvordan de laveste er blevet hævet. Dem, som havde mindst før, har fået højere indkomster siden. Det gælder især de flere hundrede millioner i Indien og Kina, som har oplevet virkelig konstant indkomstfremgang over de seneste årtier. Men grafen viser også, hvordan indkomsterne er faldet for de vestlige middelklasser og faldet relativt meget endda. Og så viser den, hvordan helt til sidst, der hvor snablen lige drejer opad, hvordan overklasserne er blevet meget, meget rigere. Så vi får med den enkle graf et billede af, hvad globaliseringen har gjort ved fordelingen af velstand i verden. Branko Milanovic har nu udgivet en ny bog, som hedder Visions of Inequality from the French Revolution to the end of the Cold War. Det er en bog, hvor han går tilbage og læser de økonomer og de økonomiske teoretikere, som han selv er blevet formet af. Dem, han har læst i 40 år, og nu har han sat sig for at skrive dem sammen til det, der er en slags økonomisk idehistorie med fokus på ulighed. Branko Milanovic har også de seneste år gjort sig til en hæftig kritiker af dem, der kritiserer vækst som målet for samfundsøkonomien. Han mener ikke rigtig, at vækstkritikerne har gjort sig det helt klart, hvad konsekvensen er af deres position. Særligt har han anmeldt en anden af podcasten her, gode venner, nemlig den britiske økonom Kate Rayworths bog om donorøkonomien, særdeles kritisk. Så alt det skal vi selvfølgelig tale med Branko Milanovic om i den samtale, der følger nu. God fornøjelse. So thank you. It's a wonderful read. It's really an interesting uh, book. But I, I want to start with, like you saw when I when I sent you the questions, I want to start with a somewhat personal question because you've been working on inequality for decades now. And over the last decade or so, it has become, I wouldn't say fashionable, but but there are many econ- economists working with it now. But you were before that. How did you originally come to take an interest in inequality? Uh, yes, that's that's actually a good question. You know, it was a combination, I think, of the two things which are not always very common, but I, as a kid and as a young high school student, I had always very strong interest in social issues. I cannot say exactly, you know, class structure, but anyway, I tended to see a society as a, a sort of a agglomeration or a composition of different classes in some sense. And then on the other hand, when I actually did my studies in in Belgrade in the 1970s, uh, you had, after two years, you had to decide which um, 
different type of economics you would do. And actually, I decided to go for statistics. It was called statistics cybernetics. In those days, cybernetics was a popular term, but it really was statistics. And it was really then that I saw that actually uh, statistics could be used, obviously, to study income inequality. And actually, I didn't know that before. But when, uh, you know, first time when they drew income distribution curve, it just occurred to me that whatever we have been learning very abstractly about distributions can be applied to income inequality. So that's how actually I started. And then, of course, I got interested in the measurement, in the Gini coefficient, in empirical data, you know, had friends who actually were able to, from the statistical office, to give me the data. So that's how it started. There's an interesting little sentence in your book, when you, in your new book, when you look back on, on your book from 1998, and you're very critical of the, the young Branko Milanovic work, and you say, when looking back, that was sheer empiricism and nothing else. And of course, it, it invites the question, how, how did your understanding of inequality evolve over time? You know, I think actually it's a very good that you mentioned that short sentence, and I did not want to elaborate. I, I think that first, like many young people, I was a little bit worried about, um, how should I say, putting my opinions uh, out strongly. But so long as you're purely empirical, uh, you can defend your sort of article or your point of view by saying, well, this is really what the data say. Uh, so that was, I think, one reason. It's actually, I think, lack of confidence among young people, including obviously myself. <laughs> and the second reason was that my work, which then continued at the World Bank, as you know, I went there and actually I was in a unit that studied the, the effects uh, of transition on poverty and inequality. I think to some extent, and I see that only now, I kind of also absorbed the neoclassical or neoliberal view of the world, which was particularly strong on the issues like inequality and poverty. In other words, document what was happening, but don't go any further than that. And for example, my book that you mentioned actually about the transition, the um, income inequality and poverty during the transition is, is very empirical. And actually the reason why I wrote it, I thought this would be the only, and I still I believe it's the only book that in one place Uh, brings together all the empirical evidence or most of the empirical evidence about what happened. But you see, I did not want to go further. I didn't want to go into a sort of um, an analysis, for example, of oligarchy, of crony capitalism, of class structure, of uh, the fact that the workers were not paid for months and months and so on. So I didn't go into that. But when you became known, or at least we got to know you here in the newspapers, of course, First of all, with, with the elephant graph, what we thought at the time was so great about your work, because, you know, a lot of us are students of the left who know a lot of theory, but are very weak on data and very, very weak on numbers. Then what I really enjoyed was all the data that you brought with you from your work in the World Bank, and you put it to public use. But now in your new book, uh, then you go to the thinking uh, about economy, the stuff that we grew up with. And at a certain time, I thought, well, we've been studying Adam Smith. We've been studying Karl Marx. What did it help us in, in public debate? So I think a lot of us here have been going towards 
empirics, and of course also influenced by the success of Piketty and, and, and others. But in your new book, you go back to the thinking about inequality. What inspired that move? You know, I, I do so. You're absolutely right. What inspired this movement is that I was uh, reading these authors for 40 years, you know. Obviously, Marx, I started reading Marx when I was, I think, 17 or maybe 16. Uh, Pareto as well, who actually, uh, I know it might seem strange, but I actually have lots of sympathy for Pareto, maybe because many other people dislike him very strongly, uh, on a personal basis even. And of course, I read Adam Smith, and I read Ricardo mostly because of Marx, because as you know, Marx spent, I mean, Marx has written more about Ricardo than the total texts that Ricardo wrote. Uh, and Kenne, I actually had two articles on Kenne because I was intrigued by his, by him putting numbers on sizes of social classes, incomes, and so on. And of course, Kuznets, obviously, who actually, as you know, figures in my book about the uh, global inequality, and so obviously is, is the, one of the key students, key, key scholars on inequality. So I thought actually uh, I wanted essentially to go over my own uh, thinking and to say, okay, what can we really say, or actually, as I say in my introduction, if I were to ask each of the authors to give him an exam question and say, what do you think are the forces that determine inequality at that time when you're writing, and how do you think they would evolve? So that was, I actually put that in the introduction, uh, because I wanted really still to stay empirical you know there is as, as you know there is no normative discussion in my book so i wanted them to tell me what they saw as inequality at that time and how it would evolve so it was to some extent empirical but obviously the the main thread is the is history of thought and uh, i became really kind of friends with these people i have to say <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, learning quite a lot about their private lives uh, and uh, how they were. So it actually it, it was a pleasure to read. I think actually maybe it was the most pleasurable book for me as a writer. It's also very pleasurable to read, really, because you meet these people and they come up quite sympathetic because you start from what's the problem that they want to solve. So so you think with them, which is nice. Another thing that I was surprised to learn was in the beginning, you say that you need three things if you think about income inequality, narrative, theory, and empirics. And I was struck by this narrative because I grew up with so many people who had strong narratives before theory and before empirics, and it always distorted their thinking. No, I totally agree with you that if one starts simply with the narrative and then tries to figure out how to fill that narrative, that's not a good approach. But what I meant, is that income inequality is a very, how should I say, it's a very difficult topic in the sense that it is heavily empirical data-driven. It has very strong political and social connotation. And it is something that um, on which everybody has an opinion. You know, it's it's a very difficult topic in that sense. It's a little bit like uh, like football. Everybody has an opinion on football. Maybe you know nothing, but, you know, you have an opinion. So people have it on income distribution. And I believe in order to make your point of view uh, clearer for simply ex uh, uh, proper purposes of exposition, it is useful to have a sort of a narrative. You have to tell people, 
this is my narrative. And if you look at, and actually I mentioned, I'm not going to repeat it, but in the book, all six uh, authors and Piketty as well have a very consistent narrative. They can tell you their narrative, as you know, in about five minutes or 10 minutes. Now, of course, that's not enough. Everybody can come with the narrative. You need to have empirical support. You have first the theory, where this narrative come from, and empirical support. But as I mentioned to you in the answer, you know, it's not impossible, and this actually, I'm not a specialist in the theory of knowledge, but it's not impossible that our even prior sort of uh, approach to the topic is sometimes intuitive. An intuitive approach leads us maybe in some cases even to have narrative before the rest. But, you know, I do agree with you. Uh, I, I put narrative number one simply for the purposes of exposition and attraction in the sense of attraction of for other people of your theory. So you've been rereading this whole, these great thinkers and their narratives. Is it possible to say something in general about how the narratives of inequality are shaped over time? You know, one thing that I would say in general, which really comes from my writing of this book, I thought maybe about that, but in a very vague sense. But after having written the book, I think it's very clear to me. It's each of the authors. First of all, they were not, of course, authors of inequality only. This was one of the topics for many of them might not have even been the key topic. But uh, when they think of inequality, where actually you try to distill what they think of inequality, it is really always based on heterogeneity or differences among a given population. Uh, as I mentioned, of course, Kenney thinks of legal classes, you know, the estates, of course, reproducing the French structure before the revolution. Uh, uh, Smith, Ricardo and Marx very clearly define classes, actually starts with Smith, define classes with, with, their, uh, with respect to their access to the means of production. Labor force, labor power, uh, capital, and land. Very clear. But legal equality, of course, as we know. Then comes Pareto. Uh, here again, there is heterogeneity. There is an elite, and of course, Pareto, as you know, has the theory of the circulations of the elite, and there is the population. Then Kuznets, even. You have agricultural population or rural population and urban population or manufacturing. So again, there is heterogeneity. Uh, one of the problems that I had, the type of neoclassical economics of the 1970s, is that heterogeneity was to some extent artificially uh, sort of forgotten. And then we ended up with like agents who just happen to have different factors of production, but it makes no difference because you, you can have a K and I can can L, but it's all the same. You, you can have very different incomes, but it's all the same. We are, we are optimizing under the conditions of scarcity and following our self-interest. So that's what I actually came to the conclusion that you have to have some guiding light about the heterogeneity of the population. And to stop this long answer, it could be that today, for example, maybe that racial division is important much more than we saw it before. Even if it before was more important, we see it differently now. Or it could be that the gender division, or it could be ethnic division, or at the global level, division between the countries. So, but we do have to have heterogeneity. Otherwise, we really sort of uh, do not have a study of inequality if we believe that inequality is simply 
difference in income between otherwise identical people. And that's, I, feel, I think, actually where, um, where the neoclassical economics went wrong. We'll get back to the neoclassical economics, but I want to make one uh, stop here in the book because I, I learned a lot from your expose about Adam Smith. Because uh, usually, I think many of us we learn that there's the left-wing Adam Smith uh, yes. from from the theory of moral sentiments, celebrated by Amartya Sen, and we all read Amartya Sen. And then there's the right-wing. Uh, I'm, I'm putting it crudely here. Right. Uh, Adam Smith of the wealth of the nation whom the neoliberals love. And and so we have each our own Adam Smith, and we can have a discussion about that. But you make a very, very interesting, I think compelling and convincing an analysis of his of his work. We, we, yeah, we complex that picture. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm very glad that you asked me that, because I think it is really, whether one agrees or not, but I think it's an important uh, discussion of Adam Smith in that chapter. I, uh, as you mentioned, Partly under the influence of Amartya Sen, we have the impression, and others too, but the impression that uh, theory of moral sentiments is essentially about empathy. And wealth of nations is about self-interest. So when you put these two things together, you say, who is a nicer, more left-wing Adam Smith? Yes, well, this is the empathic Adam Smith. And then there is this other Adam Smith who is really tough-nosed, like hard-nosed, and who actually cares only, as, as, as um, um, Stigler said, the granite of self-interest. But when you read the two books, and actually I read only part originally before writing this book, or only parts of the theory of moral sentiments, but it's actually, it is striking how critical is, on the wealth of nations, how critical Smith about the way that wealth is acquired. How critical, we know that, about East India Company about Genoa, about Pisa, about Venice, about colonization, about slavery as well, although he didn't believe that slavery would be abolished, so inefficiency and inequity. And how, which is very important, how capitalist interest goes against popular interest, because that's a very important part where he says there are three classes. Two classes have their interests coincide with the popular interest of a society, workers and landowners, and I'll explain later why it doesn't matter, but capitalists do not. And the reason why they do not is because in the development of society, the rate of return or profit would necessarily go down. So for them, it is not necessarily good that the society be richer. And then he says that's why they are very uh, persuasive in convincing you of their argument but they are very clever, but you should not follow. It's actually everything that the left wing would say today. And then you go to the uh, theory of moral sentiments, and there, uh, of course, the discussion, as many people have said, is more about uh, values, about morality in a small society. It's a society of people with people or people with whom we interact daily. And then, of course, there is much more about ethics and morality and empathy. So totally agree. But when it comes to the greater world, uh, Adam Smith often dismisses the, uh, how should I say, the way that the wealth has been made. He actually uses almost, if I may say so, like Veblen-like uh, ridicule of the rich. You know, okay, these rich people, they actually waste their money. They don't know how to spend it. 
They believe that they are happy, but actually they are not. So it's not a critique which is social. It's a critique of uh, mores or uh, behavior of the rich. And I think that's the big difference. And I, I really would, would like to expand on that, not with you today, but generally, the wealth of nations is a critique of the way that the rich behave and have acquired money. Theory of moral sentiment is a critique of their maybe lack of ethics, let's put it like that, or, or simple-mindedness. And you make, a, you make a very interesting point that in The Wealth of Nations, he actually proposes something that is quite similar to what those who call themselves socialists in America propose, the Bernie Sanders version, which is going back to the New Deal and saying, well, though those uh, the rich people they they really don't know what's good for capitalism in the long run uh, they are rich but they don't know what will create growth in society so it's kind of the ideological battle on the left in america that you find in adam smith i i think it's really that adam smith has been very selectively quoted i think it is a very long book i don't think too many people have read it but i think you can actually draw and you have seen the quotations I called it actually in one of the pieces that I wrote. I wrote the bitterness of Adam Smith. There is a certain bitterness. It is actually an older man who has seen, because he was very, I think, realistic and uh, maybe sometimes even uh, sarcastic. And he saw the real world. And that comes out very clearly. And I mentioned that, as you know, i mentioned, for example, the usage of the word uh, which had to do with God, divinity, uh, supreme being, and so on. It is mentioned in um, uh, The Wealth of Nations six times, I believe, in, in 1,500 pages. It is mentioned, uh, I think uh, I forgot the number, it's like 80 times in The, theor- in the Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's, it's a much more critical Smith that we deal with in The Wealth of Nations. And by being critical of society, he becomes closer to the left because left tends to be critical and the right tends to argue in a capitalist society that, of course, things are generally okay, but that need to be you know, improved left a little bit on one side or the other side. And then there's this, uh, this from the history of ideas, interesting moment where the thinking of inequality almost disappears in the yes. post-war period. And I actually remember, I'm, I'm born in 74. I remember my parents talking about inequality as a thing of the past. And if they saw that there was still inequality, they would put it in historical terms saying, well, I can't believe we still th- see that today, that we still have. So it's like a residue from the past. What happened yes. to the thing? Yes, this is a really good question. I actually thought of that. And to give a short answer, my opinion, uh, that was the most controversial chapter, the chapter seven on uh, on the eclipse. I think it's controversial because and one of the reasons is, is that I really find parallelism, the, the eclipse of inequality studies in the East, in the socialist countries and in the West. And that parallelism comes from essentially a political pressure. In the East, the political pressure was quite well known. The argument was well known. This is, the, the, the class structure has, the classes have been abolished. There is no class, there is no, and it's actually technically true. There are no large uh, landowners. There are no capitalists and all of that. Everybody is employee of the state. People might have different incomes, but really it's not worthwhile studying because the background institutions are just. 
Consequently, whatever you were paid in, in principle is how you should be paid. Now, let's go to the, to the side of capitals. I think it's especially the case in the US, which was in a competition with the Soviet Union. The argument was, it is true that in US, class structure was always more fluid than in Western or than in Europe in general. And then the, the American dream of everybody being able to actually go from the bottom to the top. And then the competition with the Soviet Union were basically, they would say, look, we don't have classes either. You know, we have rich and poor people, but the background institutions are just because it is a market. Market rewards people. I mean, to take the example of Hayek, you know, I'm not saying that U.S. realized Hayek, but Hayek's view, which is a sort of uh, logical, is if the background institutions are right, it is meaningless to speak of justice or income inequality because uh, it is something you get your income simply because you have served somebody else's need. So it doesn't make sense to say, he says, justice makes sense only if you have a bureaucratic organization. If you have a decentralized organization where you cannot make money unless you have done something for somebody that somebody wants to pay you for, there is no reason to study that. So I think there was this political element and then combined to that was the element that I mentioned before, neoclassical turn towards much more abstract and class-free analysis. So these two elements, I believe in chapter seven, I argue, were basically made income distribution studies redundant. That doesn't mean that there were no empirical studies. Of course, Tony Atkinson did quite a lot. But what is noticeable, and I mentioned in his studies and others, uh, was the absence of the political element. For example, Tony writes about the history of wealth inequality in, in, in Britain over three centuries. But we don't know when the strikes happened, where the different governments came to power, when the war happened, when the you know, uh, political elements uh, pushed inequality either up or down. And I think that part, uh, I think, uh, was missing. But it's interesting because when I think of the 60s and the 70s, you know, there was a very strong leftist mm -hmm. tendency in the in the universities yeah. here. But it's like that inequality was almost like petty bourgeois to talk about. You know, you wanted the revolution or you wanted the big picture. So it's so I think also in our part of the world, you got a lot of Marxism from the Frankfurt School, but not the inequality part. Yeah, you actually pushed me now in the direction that I should have thought more. First of all, I was really never... Uh, uh, I didn't know much about the Frankfurt School. I knew about young Marx. Uh, and it is true that if, okay, let me put it, I, I, this is like a tentative answer. I think if you take left-wing revolution, which was a, in some sense a revolution in the 1960s late and, and the 70s, to be about the end of, well, abolition of classes, end of alienation, and sort of flowering of human potential then you're really dealing with young Marx in essential. And this other part, empirical class uh, uh, inequality, somehow loses its importance. Uh, maybe you were pushing me now, maybe I should have said something about that in the book. Uh, because it is true, there is an a, a priori, there is a contradiction that you pointed out, that the 60s were very much leftist ideologically they were very leftist and on the other hand they didn't either 
no more than this other neoclassical uh, studying inequality. So yes, it is, it's a paradox a little bit. I have to think more about that, but I can see the point. But I think it's the logic of your book is that there are so many roads you could have taken. And then it would have been a very, very, very long, long book. But then the inequality studies, they come back and the understanding of inequality has come back over the last couple of decades. Your work has been important here. I believe Stiglitz's work have been important. Several of the French economists have been how, how did it? How do, how do you see and explain the return of the study of income inequality? Uh, let me just mention before, because I was thinking again, your, your previous question, there was something you might have seen maybe on my Substack. I do really believe that there was a, a evolution in the way that we read Marx. Uh, the, the 60s, 70s was young Marx, so I don't need to repeat. Uh, the one that I actually, more, because I'm an economist, was most interested is really the mature Marx, essentially, of Capital and, you know, first and second volume, basically by 1867, 1870. But there is a new Marx, the third one, that is now becoming more popular because of globalization, because that was the Marx that for the first time uh, gets interested in issue, for example, can Russia go become capitalist without, uh, become socialist without being capitalist? Can you go from common ownership of land to actually not go through private ownership and so on? Anyway, so that's what I wanted to say on that topic. So just was thinking. Now, why did uh, the, the question that you asked, why did inequality studies come back? Now, I think the reason, in my opinion, had to do quite a lot with the crisis of 2007, 2008. I think that crisis revealed that, especially in the U.S., revealed that some group of people, top 1%, maybe top 5%, have done extremely well. And for the others, that they believed that they were doing well because they were able to borrow and because they were able to buy houses. You know, you remember uh, George W. Bush saying that actually everybody should have a house whether you had money or not, whether you had a job or whatever. And then it is like when you have the ocean and the ocean uh, uh, recedes, you have the ebb, and suddenly it reveals the reality. And the reality was these people could not pay mortgages, could not even pay rent, didn't have jobs, and then this end, they had to pay credit card debt, which was more than 100% of GDP. And then they realized, well, look, I thought I was doing really well, but basically it was all boring. And it was borrowing from these rich people who had excess money balances. So uh, that actually brought the realization of inequality to the thinking of the public. And then we had, of course, often it happens, you know, that there is an important book, in this case, you know, the capital in the 21st century that came. But, you know, if capital in the 21st century had come in 1995, it would have been read by you know, maybe one hundredth of the number of people who bought it, at least already. Uh, so it was really uh, at, at, uh, uh, fortuitous timing. And I think that changed then things in, in, a, in a very significant manner. The last part of your book, you end on a quite hopeful note. I know it's not a normative book, but there's a hopeful note where, where you said that that today we're in the remarkable position of having access both to an infinitely greater quantity of data and three relatively clear theories of, of change. And of course, I'm curious about that because I, I have the feeling that inequality is very, very hard to change. 
No, I, what I meant actually is that we have, uh, okay, the data is obvious. We have now much more data. You have an enormous number of young people who are studying really sometimes even the topics that you would never imagine they would study because they pull out the data. And now a studying of income inequality, which like only 20 years ago or 15 even years ago was considered like, why do it? You know, who cares? Now, because of this data intensity and having econometrics and having mathematics has become really very fashionable. And actually, especially when I say fashionable, I mean, it's actually can lead you to get good positions and good jobs at good universities. And young people react to the incentives and they do it. But I think it came because, of course, there was an increased interest in the population, but also because we had, I think, I mentioned, I think, three different areas, which I believe, on which I'm quite optimistic. One is uh, uh, essentially what Piketty brought, and then, of course, was expanded by many others, you know, Saez, Zuckman, uh, Facundo Alvaredo, and then the entire uh, sort of a production of new data, if you will, and new studies for the rest of the world. So that was really a big, big uh, change. And even going back to the narrative, the R greater than G is a very good narrative. You know, this narrative doesn't come out from nowhere. It comes out from the production function. It is very succinct and generally makes sense. Now, whether it is always the case, well, there are different issues, but it's a very good narrative. Then we have, on which I'm quite uh, optimistic, a greater development of historical data of income inequality, which comes from social tables. Now, I like social tables because they give you uh, estimates of average size and average income by class structure. So they have an element that the top 1% does not have. Top 1% can tell you, okay, you know, top 1% in Germany in 1910 had uh, 22% of the GDP. But when you have a social table, you say, well, who are these people at the top? And then you see they have data. Oh, it is, of course, bureaucracy, uh, generals, top military people, top clergy. It gives you much more information. And likewise for the middle class and the bottom. And my third, maybe in this sense I'm biased, uh, area, which I'm very optimistic, is global inequality. Now, why am I optimistic on that? Because for the first time in history, we have the data and we have interest to look at the world as a whole. So it's not a small development. You know, every author that I mentioned and we talked about, by by nature, looked at one or two countries. You know, Marx looked at maybe a little bit, few more countries because he was interested in transition to socialism. But, you know, it was still relevant, uh, uh, limited by the countries. Uh, for the first time, we look at the world. And, you know, it's not simply, and I'll stop there, not simply world versus a country. You have new questions that are being raised. My favorite question is being raised is a philosophical question. Uh, hardly anybody anywhere would defend today uh, uh, a low mobility, low social mobility. Nobody would say, well, it is really good that the rich parents have kids who are also rich. But when you look, then you say, okay, that's excellent. But is this equality of opportunity that you wish for limited by the nation state? Then already it picks you a problem like why do you think it's okay that the that the cab driver or a bus driver in Kampala should have one tenth of the income of Copenhagen? And then it pushes you 
to think. There may be arguments, and of course, there are philosophers who have the arguments, but it really opens a new problem which you don't see if you work within a nation state. So that's why I think actually it is a big, big move forward. And definitely a move forward that you've been uh, contributing a lot to. I want to ask you here in the end about something else, because you did a review of, of Kate Rayworth's book about donut economics that we also, uh, we're the publishers right. of you and her, and you criticized something that I thought was very funny because I, I felt it was about me also, and the we-ism of the book. And and I think that is a very important criticism for the left. Uh, so so what what was it that you criticized by the we I really, okay, I criticize, as you call it, we-ism, is, uh, let me go back to what I was saying about inequality. Obviously, with somebody who works in equality, I tend to see heterogeneity. So I see different people, different interests, different behavior, and so on. And I, if you look at the climate change specifically, first, it was brought up by different countries, different people, different generations. So if we talk about responsibility, The responsibility is not equally shared. The responsibility is shared is greater for for one group than for the other. Present day, similarly, the people. I mean, we know that the elasticity of CO2 emissions with respect to income is close to one. So, if your income is 10% higher than mine, on average, you would emit 10% more. So, we are not the same. You cannot say that somebody who is actually picking up, you know, branches and using them to, you know, in in um, in Africa, and somebody who has three cars in in California are like we. We we are not we, and that's what actually we are disagreeing. Uh, and consequently, the claim that we should all somehow jointly participate equally in some sense, but that doesn't make any sense because. If you want to deal with it, you have you require much more adjustment for people who are greater producers of carbon emissions, and that's why I actually I, I maybe I was a little bit too tough on 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 Kate because I really thought that was a an attempt to not to obfuscate the issue but to make rich people sort of feel good about themselves. Yes, this is the issue that we all have to face and we all have to work together. But I think in reality, uh, we might have, there is a certain, of course, general issue, but our responsibilities nor the means to contribute to solution are the same. So that was that was my point. But if, because it is striking, of course, uh, Piketty wrote about that as well, you know, how the inequality, so to speak, replicates itself in the fear sure. of, of emissions. Uh, but then every time you want to do something about emissions, the, you you have this problem with the specific taxes that you end up hurting the poor, so to speak. So so you have no, so you are always, our social democratic government here in Denmark, like the social democrats in Germany, like the labor uh, opposition party in, in the UK, they're very much afraid of the working class when it comes to 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 to, to climate change. Do you see a way of dealing with it in a in a way that 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 kind of reflects the inequality of it, so that you 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 have progressive taxation in it, essentially? You know, I have not actually done any empirical work, but it seems to me that if you had a very progressive taxation on activities that are really creating, uh, they're responsible for a lot of that. You know, for example, consumption of meat. Uh, air conditioning, uh, cars, uh, 
uh, obviously call. I think you could actually address it. I'm actually sufficiently of an economist uh, by training to believe that through a combination of taxation and subsidies, you could make a difference. However, I have to say that I do have a certain understanding and sympathy for the middle class rejection of that. Uh, people really are comfortable with the way of life that they have. They actually, many of them think that maybe it is, should be a problem of the elite. Let the elite deal with that. And there are, of course, many issues. If you remember, for example, with the French uh, uh, Yellow Vest movement, uh, they really reacted to increase in fuel because for many of them, going to work and uh, is, is uh, obviously uh, they need a car. They go there. It becomes very expensive. So, you know, you, you have to take this into account. Uh, you cannot just sort of say uh, we're, you know, it seems a nice position. We're going to sort of make that decision and regardless of political uh, consequences. So th I think it is it is very hard. And uh, very often people, I'll stop there, but I will say very often people say that uh, they're in favor of degrowth and, you know, rich countries already have too much and all of that. But degrowth first has a problem that rich countries do not want to get immiserated. Nobody wants to lose 20% of their income. And secondly, if you have degrowth, you might actually then slow down the growth of very poor people. So you cannot have it all. You can, And that's where the really difficult trade-offs are. And it seems to me sometimes the climate change movement does not want to face them. They know they exist, but they prefer not to face them. I have just one last uh, question, which is, that when we've been looking back on, on the era that was dominated by neoliberalism, we looked at some of the economists and said, well, this is what Friedman wrote. This is what this is what Van Mies wrote. And, and then we we suggest they had a lot of power because, because people in power were doing what they were describing the theories. Now it seems that there's another consensus. There are new ideas coming in. And I asked myself, is it the, the power of economists that made neoliberalism strong? Or is it just that they, these ideas suited the rich? It's very difficult because, of course, I think that uh, that uh, it's uh, mutually reinforcing. I do believe uh, that uh, the rich have a disproportionate influence on what is being produced in the intellectual sphere and what is then being absorbed by the students. So I'm, I I don't believe into that. I don't think that any reasonably, a reasonable person should believe in this kind of a neutrality of science in the sense that only the correct views, quote unquote, get out in the, you know, um, especially so in social sciences. But even in hard sciences, we do have, of course, changes, but I'm not going to discuss that. So I do believe that uh, very often they actually to be very blunt, they write what basically they know would be pleasing to those who have money. And there, too, we have to be very clear. Uh, the importance of private money in the university system in the U.S. is increasing tremendously. Uh, many of these people, when you meet them, you can say, well, they are nice people and so on. But, but the question is actually, should preferences of these quote-unquote nice people dictate what is being studied at universities. And then you actually obviously adjust what you're saying to maybe to get a grant, 
maybe to get uh, uh, a chair, maybe to, you know, become more popular. So there is the influence. We, it is really, I think, unrealistic to believe that there is no influence from that money. You know, unless, you know, interesting part when I was talking, I, I think I, in Capitalism Alone, I mentioned that because there is such a heavy concentration of, uh, uh, of contributions for the presidential campaigns. So you can actually say that these people are actually, if you believe and argue that they are not trying to influence policies, then it's totally crazy investment. So these people have mm-hmm. become rich by being very clever. So are they going out to take millions of dollars and just throw it away? No, they have to get a return on that. I, re- I remember that part. Well, congratulations on your book. Thank you for taking your time. It was such a pleasure talking to you and reading your new book, Branko. Thank you for Thanks talking to us. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Det var min samtale med Branko Milanovic. Den bog, vi talte om, hans nye bog, hedder Visions of Inequality from the French Revolution to the End of the Cold War. Og vi kan faktisk præstere noget så fuldstændigt sjældent for langsom samtale som en nyhed, fordi bogen er ikke engang udkommet nu. Den udkommer i anden halvdel af oktober på Harvard University Press. Jeg anbefaler, at man bestiller den hjem til den boghandler, hvor man plejer at købe sine bøger. Så kan vi også holde boghandlernes infrastruktur kørende. Hans hovedværk er Global Ulighed fra 2016, som vi er de glade udgiver af her på Informationsforlag, og som man kan købe, hvis man går ind på butik.information.dk. Hvis man er blevet så begejstret for at lytte til Branko Milanovic, at man tænker, at man vil egentlig gerne vide noget mere om vækstkritik, kritik af vækstkritik, det store økonomiske drama, spørgsmålet om ulighed og fordeling af magt og penge i verden, ja, så kan man jo faktisk også gå ind på butikken og tegne et abonnement på Dagbladet Information. Det er så heldigt, at man kan få den første måned gratis, og så kan man se, om det er noget for en. Der er nogen, der siger, at det er stærkt vanedannende. Det skal jeg ikke gøre mig til dommer over. Man har i hvert fald muligheden for at prøve det af. Den her samtale var ligesom vores foregående samtaler produceret og redigeret af vores stærke kammerat og virkelig gode hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi tale med den tyrkisk-amerikanske økonom Darren Asamuglu. Han blev verdenskendt, da han i 2012 sammen med James Robinson udgav bogen Why Nations Fail, som er en imponerende politisk institutionshistorie, hvor han viser, hvorfor nogle statsdannelser fungerer og andre ikke fungerer. Nu har han så skrevet en ny bog, som handler om teknologi, som er en undersøgelse igen af 2.000 års historie, hvor han viser, hvornår teknologi er kommet flertallet til gode, og hvornår det har været noget, et lille mindretal har kunne bruge til at holde flertallet nede med. Så vi får både klassekamp og fordeling af velstand og magt, og en fascinerende idehistorie i næste uge. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak for, at I lyttede med. Jeg håber, I lytter med igen næste uge.